You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. On Friday, the Toronto Maple Leafs selected Austin Matthews as their first overall draft pick. He is deemed as being the savior for the Toronto Maple Leafs. All of the time leading up to the Toronto's terrible season this year to them winning the last pick in the, in the lottery to the very day and all the days leading up to the first game of the season, the one question that will be asked is, is Austin Matthews a good hockey player? You see, we don't know that for sure. He grew up in Arizona, which doesn't bode well. Uh, he, he, he played a professional hockey in Switzerland before, uh, before coming to the NHL. He doesn't have sort of the standard Canadian pedigree to kind of make it as a hockey player in Toronto. But the question, is Austin Matthews a good player, will be answered quite quickly. It will be answered when he starts playing the game. It will be answered based on a pretty simple amount of criteria. Does he score goals? Does he stay out of the penalty box? Does he play his position? You see, it's pretty easy to determine whether or not someone is a good hockey player or not. You don't just take their word for it. You don't just listen to someone else. You can tell objectively if someone is a good hockey player. It's the same with every profession. You can tell if you're a good bus driver if you don't run people over. You can tell if you're a good accountant if you know math and remember important details. It's very easy to know if you are good at your job. So how are you doing at your job? Are you good at your job? Are you a good accountant? Are you a good teacher? Are you a good homemaker? But I want to ask you a deeper question today. Are you a good person? You see, it's very easy to determine how you're doing at your job. It's a lot more difficult to determine how you are doing as a person. What makes a good person? I bet you if you were to stop a bunch of people in the city of Brampton and while they're, uh, while they're shopping today or while they're hanging out in their backyard or hiding inside with their air conditioning, if you were to ask someone, hey, are you a good person? Chances are they would say yes. We live in a world filled with people that are convinced that they are good. But the question is, on what criteria? What are the rules of the game that show that you are actually good? You see, most of us think about the world this way. There's two categories. There's good people and there's bad people. And everyone just automatically assigns themselves on the side of good. But what is the reason that you think you are good? You see, some people would say, well, no, everyone's good. And and, and we're we're all special. We're all good. But then when we start to think about, you know, world history, well, I mean, there's, there's Hitler, there's Stalin, there's Pol Pot, there's all of the, there's people even uh, in our contemporary world, like ISIS, like Boko Haram, there's people who have, who have committed horrible atrocities, who are right now engaged in such evil practices. No one is really comfortable saying everyone is good. There must be a dividing line, but why is it that we assume we are on the side of good people. We're so confident in knowing that we're good, yet we have no reason to explain why we are. I mean, for all we know, we don't even know the rules of the game. We don't even know what the expectations are. For all we know, we could be on this side of the line and not even know it. We could live our whole lives thinking that we are a good person and then have a rude awakening. 
You see, in Psalm 32, what we're going to see is that the most important thing about you is not that you are a good person, but that you are a forgiven person. That is the most important thing. You see, the way the Bible describes it, it's not that there are good people and bad people and that there's some sort of a line. The Bible takes a line and crosses out this whole concept of being good people. There are no good people. That's what God's word tells us time and time again. And so before we open Psalm 32, I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to ask that God would speak to us through his word about the importance of being forgiven and leaving behind these notions of thinking that we are good people. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been able to hear from our missionary this morning. We've been able to hear from our children. We've been able to uh, sing your praise and worship you. We pray right now that as your word is open, God, that you would speak through me, God. That this wouldn't merely be an exercise about a man giving a, a lecture or a sermon talking about God, but that what is about to happen would be God speaking through a man, through his word. So we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 32 and all of the Bible is not about being good. Psalm 32 is about being forgiven. And from God's word today, we are going to see five characteristics of forgiven people. We're going to spend most of our time on the first characteristic, and it's this, that forgiven people are blessed. Forgiven people are blessed. If you were to go around to those same people today who are out shopping or in their backyard or hiding in their air conditioning and ask them, are you completely happy with your life? Are you living the greatest life that you could possibly live? Chances are just about all of them would say, no, I'm not. And then if you were asked a follow-up question, what would need to happen in order for you to live the greatest life you could possibly live? What would need to happen for you to have that fulfillment that you feel like you don't have? There would be a variety of answers in order for me to live the good life, in order for me to have it all together, in order for me to have no more longing, I would need a more money, I would need more stable relationships, I, I would need a, a better health, I would need all of these things in order to live the good life. The Bible tells us that the good life belongs to those who are forgiven. Forgiven people are blessed. Psalm 32 begins by saying, uh, a maskil of David. Maskil, that's just sort of a, a, a technical term to describe the kind of song that it is and how the instrumentation uh, should accompany the words. Then it says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word blessed uh, literally means happy. It's describing the person who is living the good life. According to the Bible, the people who are living the happiest, the people who have it all together, the people who are living life in its fullness and who have everything that this life has to offer, the people who are blessed are the people who are forgiven. Regardless of their health, regardless of their finances, regardless of their relationships, the people who are blessed are the people who are forgiven. That's a pretty bold statement. To say that that is all you really need to be living the good life is to know that you are forgiven. And so we're going to have to take a close look at this claim that the Bible is making here. What do they mean by saying that forgiven people are blessed? Let's read the rest of the verse. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This verse here is talking about sin, that we have sin 
that needs to be forgiven. In order for us to understand forgiveness, we need to understand sin. We need to understand why we need forgiveness and who it is that needs to forgive us. So let's begin by defining sin. We're going to look at the three words used for sin in these two verses. The first word is sin. So just jot down your notes, defining sin. The first word we're going to define is sin. Sin means missing the mark. It's having a target, aiming at it, and missing it. It's having a lane that you're supposed to run through and stepping outside of that lane. It's having boundaries that you're supposed to play in and stepping out of bounds. That's what sin means. It's a violation. It is stepping outside. There is a standard that has been set and we have been unable to meet that standard. Take your hand right now and reach it up to the sky. Take your hand, reach it up as far as you can. Now if the ceiling were the standard that all of us had to reach, us reaching right now, that is a symbol of our sin. The standard is way up there and we cannot reach it. The target is up there. We can't get to it. All of us have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is symbolized in the ceiling. Us reaching is us trying, trying to live a good life, trying to be a good person, and we just can't live that way. The second word that's used in verse, in, in verse 1 is the word transgression. Transgression isn't just simply failure to follow some arbitrary arbitrary rule or miss some arbitrary target. No, transgression involves relationship between two people. To commit a transgression is to intentionally offend another party. Another word for transgression is rebellion. So again, I want you to take your hand again, because rebellion is not merely reaching for some standard and missing it. No, when the Bible talks about transgression, take your hand and make a fist right now and shake it towards the sky. Transgression is us telling God, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to rebel against your authority and your law. So we have sin, which is reaching for the standard. Transgression, which is rebellion against God. And then the third one is iniquity. Iniquity means distortion, twisting, or perversion. The idea of committing iniquity is to take something that is good and to twist it and distort it. Again, take that hand that was reaching for the impossible standard, that hand that's rebelling against God. Now picture that in your hand is a perfectly white eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that's in mint condition. Now picture you taking that in your hand, do it with me right now, taking that in your hand, crumpling it up. It is now twisted, it is now distorted, it is now perverted. It's not as pure and perfect as it once was. And when we sin, we take the good things that God has given us and we twist them and pervert them, whether it be our finances, whether it be our sexuality, whether it be our relationships, whatever it may be, all of us are guilty of taking something good that God has given us and twisting it and perverting it. Now some of you are here saying, well, what was all this talk about God? Okay, I believe I'm a good person and God has absolutely nothing to do with it. So then, I asked the question that I asked at the very beginning. How do you draw the line between a good person and a bad person? What are the rules of the game? Well, it's, it's, just, it's just common sense. Is it common sense? Uh, picture this. 
One person walks up to another person, smacks them in the face. The other person says, you shouldn't do that. The other person says, why? The other person says, because it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it hurts. Why is it wrong to hurt people? Because people are valuable. Why are people valuable? Just because. That's not a good enough answer. Whack! With a Christian, it's very simple. You see, you hit me in the face. I'm a creature made in God's image. God has commanded to love your neighbor. That was not loving for you to hit me like that. God is judge. He will hold you accountable for what you just did to me. It would be unloving of me to tell you you shouldn't do that. But if you take God out of the equation, there's no reason why anyone should tell anyone else that you shouldn't do something. Now sometimes atheists get offended when, we, when people who believe in God, theists, use that illustration. The assumption is that atheists have no morals. That if you don't believe in God, that, that just anything go. You can commit murder, you can do all of these horrible things. That's not true. That's not what the illustration is indicating. The illustration is indicating whether or not an atheist can actually tell someone that they've done something wrong or that they should or shouldn't do something. Because what you will find, if you take God out of the equation, when you tell someone they shouldn't do something, you will be faced with an infinite echo chamber of eternal whys. Why? Why does it matter? Why should I bother treating people a certain way? And that echo chamber of why can only be filled by one thing, and that is God. You see, if we think about our right and wrong, should do, shouldn't do, a way to think about it is thinking about it as a boat on the ocean. Now, in our society, we have been living thinking that there is right and that there is wrong. Let's take a look at the, the boat on the ocean here, and the boat is anchored. The boat is not going anywhere. The boat symbolizes our ethical or moral decisions. What we believe is right or wrong. And the anchor represents God. He is firm. He is strong. Belief in God is what anchors our should do, shouldn't do. And the boat can only go so far. And for centuries, our society has been based upon a belief in a God. And therefore, has been based upon right or wrong. But we are living right now in a culture that is challenging the idea that God exists and is saying that we don't need God to determine what's right or wrong. Now, the assumption is that if we disconnect from the anchor, the assumption is that we'll stay in the same place. The assumption is that we'll be able to tell people, you can't smack me in the face. But there's no anchor There is nothing keeping ethical, and at first that seems great. Oh, you know, we can sort of loosen up our sexual ethics a little bit and, 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 and maybe legalize certain drugs or that sort of thing, and, and it, this, it seems like we're living in freedom, but then as soon as things get taken further, there's no authority by which to tell someone they can't do it. And so the boat just eventually begins to float further away and further away and further away into an ocean of infinite moral decisions. And no one has the authority to say, you shouldn't do that. Only 
a belief in God gives someone the ability to say you shouldn't do that. And again, when a Christian says you shouldn't do that, they are loving their neighbor. They are not simply just stating their own personal preference. The concern for the believer is, I love you, I care about you. What you're doing is not only harming me, but will ultimately harm yourself. So I said we were going to spend a lot of time on this first point for us to understand what, how blessed it is to be forgiven. And we have sin, we have transgression, we have iniquity. And we only understand those things. And we can only claim that other people have done them and that we have done them if we acknowledge that God exists. If God does not exist, there is no reason to make those kinds of claims. The boat will just float away. And so God's word not only tells us what sin is and why we need to be forgiven, The Bible also tells us how we can be forgiven. And there's three pictures of forgiveness in Psalm 32. Just as there's three words for sin, there's three words for forgiveness. Again, the first one, I'm letting you off the hook. The the way the Bible describes forgiveness is to use the word forgiven. You can see that there in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. But then it goes on to say, whose sin is covered, and then against whom... The Lord counts no iniquity. You've got forgiven, covered, and not counted. These are the three words that are used for forgiveness. What does forgiven mean? I think we all understand a concept of what forgiveness means, but the the etymology of the word forgiven means to lift something off of someone and to carry it away. You see, there's always a price for forgiveness. It's not easy. When you choose to forgive someone, they feel guilty about what they've done. There's a, there's a breach in the relationship as a result. What you're doing when you forgive them is you're taking that burden off of them, and you have to find somewhere to put it. Most people, when they forgive, they take the burden off of someone else, and they try to carry it themselves, but that only leads to bitterness and resentment because now you're carrying the burden, and they're going off walking free like nothing's wrong. But forgiveness always involves lifting a burden and carrying it away. The second word is covered. That doesn't mean simply, you know, sweeping something under the rug. it's, It's covered. It's painted over. It's clean. It's out of sight. It's removed. That's what the concept of covered means. And then the concept of not counted. This is idea of having a record that has been cleared. This is having your conscience, having the, the, the tally of the right things and the wrong things that you've done, having all of the wrong things taken away, having a debt completely canceled. This is what the Bible says God does with sin. Now there's lots of ways that, that, the, that God dealt with sin in the Old Testament, and Psalm 32 was written in the Old Testament, but Psalm 32 actually looked forward to an event that was going to happen in the New Testament. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is trying to find a way to describe what Jesus did and how Jesus offers us forgiveness through the cross, the Apostle Paul quoted Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, that God takes our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, And he doesn't count it against us. He carries it away and he covers it. How does he do that? 
He took our sin that was burdening us, he lifted it off of us, and he carried it to the cross. And Jesus bore that burden for us. How is our sin covered? The blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin, takes it out of sight before a holy God. How does God not count our sin against us? The Bible tells us that when Jesus died, all of our sin was counted to him. He suffered as though he had done everything that we have done, and that his righteousness is counted to us. That is the message of the Bible, that God offers us forgiveness. He offers to cover our sin. He offers to not count our sin against us through Jesus and what he has done. Now it goes on to say, look at the end of verse 2, describing this blessed person. It says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now some people might understand this. And think that, well, forgiven people, that means that they never lie. And there's no deceit in them. That's not true. A forgiven person tells the truth about the fact that they lie. To have no deceit, what's being described there, this is the the second aspect of what it means to be forgiven. You see, forgiven people are honest people. Forgiven people are honest people. There's no deceit in them. Not that they never lie, but that they're comfortable acknowledging that they're messed up. There's something that's so freeing about just saying, I don't have it all together. There's something that's so freeing that says, I did something I shouldn't have done. You see, we spend so much time trying to cover our mistakes and make excuses and hide our weaknesses. And what the Bible tells us to do is just to come clean. Just be honest that you are a sinner. Be honest that you've let other people down. You've let yourself down. You don't even measure up to your own standard, let alone God's standard. Just be honest. In whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the psalmist is going to share a little bit of his own testimony here. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, he's saying, when I kept silent, when I tried to hide the fact that I'm a sinner, when I tried to act like I had it all together, he says, when I kept silent, what happened? My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I don't really need to explain that part about being dried up by the heat of summer. I just need to say, you know, Sunday, June 26, 1115 servers, Harvest Bible Chapel, Brampton. We're all feeling that right now, right? We all feel how heat just saps our energy. And it's so funny how the things we think will in fact energize us suck the life out of us. The things that we expect will make us feel so filled with joy and exhilaration actually make us feel depressed and despair. That's what's going on here. When I kept silent about my sin, when I tried to hide my sin and keep it away from God and keep it away from others, when I was over here doing this secret evil, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. This is going to be so fun. Eventually the person started to wilt from the heat. They began to feel absolutely miserable because of their sin. But then look at the honesty in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Maybe you need to acknowledge, just be honest 
honest with the people who are closest to you, and especially honest with God, and also honest with yourself. That we have all sinned, and that we all need forgiveness. I am the most miserable when I am trying to hide my own sinfulness. When I'm trying to blame it on the people closest to me, when I try to blame it or make excuses based on circumstances, that is a recipe for misery. But honesty sets us free from that. And don't delay. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. There is an offer being made to you from Psalm 32. An offer of forgiveness. An offer for you to admit that you're not a good person. And to admit that you need to be forgiven. But I need to, I need to make you understand that this isn't just so, some sort of take it or leave it, decide when you want to decision. It's clear. The, the statement here is to seek God while he may be found. There is an expiration date on this offer. This offer of forgiveness. You can choose to come to God now and stand before him and ask for forgiveness or you will one day find yourself before him as judge. And that's what's being referred to at the end of verse 6. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. All throughout the Bible this rush of great waters is a symbol for judgment That one day it seems like everything's fine and then a rush of great waters, a great flood is going to come. The Bible in the days of Noah describes a flood. Jesus in the the Sermon on the Mount said, build your house on the rock, not on the sand. Why did he say that? He said, because the flood is coming. He's not talking about trials in your life. He's talking about the judgment of God. When Jesus said, build your house on the rock, he meant on the house of forgiveness by faith. That's what he's aiming at. Don't build your house on the sand, the sandy foundation of thinking that your good deeds are somehow going to get you into heaven. Forgiven people must be honest. This is part, listen, when you make that decision, you are forgiven. But forgiveness is part of everyday life for the Christian. I've been talking mostly to people today who aren't followers of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to make an appeal to you today to understand that your logic of being a good person just makes no sense. And that you need to believe in God and that he offers you forgiveness. But if you are here today and you are a Christian, you need to know and understand forgiveness is part of our regular routine as Christians. I mean, Jesus put it in the Lord's Prayer saying, give us This day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgiven people forgive because they know that God has forgiven them. As as essential as a person needs food, we need forgiveness. And Jesus here is contrasting the way the Pharisees prayed. And now he says, don't pray like them, pray like this. When you pray... Pray for forgiveness. See, the Pharisees prayed. They just bragged about how great they were. Jesus said, don't pray like that. Pray like this. Ask for forgiveness continually. And 1 John 1, 1, 1, 8, 9 said, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's right there in Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is part of everyday life. Notice how he says, this is Paul, I'm sorry, this is John as a Christian writing to Christians saying, if we, we Christians, say we have no sin, he's talking about Christians. It's not an evangelism passage. He's saying forgiveness is part of the everyday routine of a Christian. It's so freeing. Yes, we know we're ultimately forgiven once for all because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we want to stay close to God. We want to be in a relationship with Him. When so often we walk away from Him. We miss the mark. We rebel against Him. And we want to make things right. And so we say, God, I'm sorry. And God says, I forgive you. I love you. Come close to me. And sometimes we get so off track in our Christian life. And Heath Lambert talks about, he's a great biblical counselor and scholar. He says that when we confess, we also need to affirm that we're forgiven. You see, so often we just confess our sin and then we we think, okay, I I need to confess more. I need to confess harder. I'm not crying yet. I need to make sure I feel really bad. I mean, really, really bad. I mean, really, really, really bad. Meanwhile, do you believe what 1 John 1, 8, 9 says? If you confess your sin... He is faithful and just. So Heath Lambert says, right along with confession also needs to be affirmation. To take a minute after you've confessed then to say, I know I'm forgiven now. I know, I know that because of what Jesus has done for me, I am forgiven. I don't need to wallow and grovel because of my sin. I have confessed it and God has forgiven me. So forgiven people are honest. They're honest about who they are. Make note of this as well. These are going to come quickly now that forgiven people are secure. Forgiven people are secure. Look at the security that's being described in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You see, trying to hide all our faults and compensate for our weaknesses and, and mask all of our shame leaves us hopelessly insecure. We're trying, we've created this kingdom and we sort of walk around and it's so fragile because we know that it's so hollow on the inside because of our sin. And if if we just get bumped, we know the whole thing is going to crash. It leads to massive insecurity, massive fear. Oh, I can't go over there because, because my kingdom will collapse and I'll be exposed and people will know who I truly am. But the forgiven person says, I'm not building any kingdom. I'm honest about who I am. I know God's forgiven me. I can go wherever God wants me to go. I can do whatever God wants me to do because I have security. It says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from my trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I love that. You see, sometimes we go through life, and one of the reasons why we don't want to go through that path is we know that people down that path, they tend to open up their mouths, and they tend to say things about us. And we're trying to do the right thing and walk down the path. And people are saying, you can't be doing that. Don't you know the person you used to be? You shouldn't be doing that, blah, blah, blah. And all of this chirping starts coming. And listen, the person who's forgiven, what's going through their mind is like, man, you you who say I'm a horrible person, if you knew the half of it, let me talk to you about sin. Let me talk about how I've perverted God's goodness. Let me talk about how I've rebelled against him. Let let, let Let me talk about how I've missed the mark. Your opinion of me is very small compared to God's opinion of me. I've sinned against him, but he's forgiven me. And so the, the forgiven person walks 
with a certain humility about them. But they also walk with this unbelievable confidence. Not this sort of swagger, like I've got it together, but this confidence of God has forgiven me. He loves me. And he will surround me with shouts of deliverance. And so you just need to understand that the next time you walk through a hard path and those voices start accusing you and shouting at you, you just need to know, you need to hear the voice of the Father because he's shouting something. You know what he's shouting? Deliverance! Deliverance! All your insecurity, all of your fear, all of the pressure, everything that's around you, this is the thing that's available to the person who trusts in Jesus Christ, that the Father, shout it with me, deliverance. That is the voice that you can hear in every situation. He is surrounding you. Nothing can touch you because he is surrounding you with shouts of deliverance. So the forgiven person is so secure Humility and confidence, two things that normally don't go together, but are only possible for the person who's forgiven. Any wonder why a forgiven person is called blessed? Wouldn't you love to have that? To have a confidence, to have a humility, to get through any situation. And then he says that now it's God talking in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Make note of this, forgiven people are wise. Forgiven people are wise. Why are they wise? You see, some people think, well, you're wise because you, know, you gained some life experience, you memorized some Bible verses, and you know what to do now. That's not where wisdom comes from. Where does wisdom come from here? It comes from listening to God. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You see, the forgiven person is wise because the forgiven person knows enough not to trust their first instinct. You think about the time, the last time you got yourself into some serious trouble. And you, you sort of do a, a, an autopsy of what happened. And I bet that the, when you analyze a time in which you got yourself into trouble was a time in which you trusted your first instinct. The forgiven person knows, listen, I've fallen into the cliff before and God got me out. I've fallen into the cliff again and God got me out. How about I just start listening to God and start avoiding the cliffs? Because when I do it on my own, it doesn't go well. And listen, the Bible tells us that we have a new heart, but the Bible never tells us to listen to our heart. The Bible tells us that we are a new creation, but it doesn't tell us, oh, we're a new creation, now we can just go off by ourselves. No, the new heart loves to listen to God's wisdom. The new creation delights in responding to the wisdom of the creator. So forgiven people are wise. They know how to make good choices because they know not to make the choices on their own. They listen to God. Then there's this ultimate picture of stubbornness in verse 9. We're not just sinful, we're stubborn. Verse, Verse 9 says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle and will not stay near you. God is saying, don't be stubborn. Don't go off and jump into another cliff. Just hear my voice. Listen to me. No bit, no bridle. Just hear my voice and respond and be wise. Forgiven people are wise. Then verse 10 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds 
the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Make note of this lastly, that forgiven people are joyful. Forgiven people are joyful. If you're here today and your life is incomplete, if you're here today and you feel like something is missing, if you're here today and feel like you're not as happy as you think life should make you, the thing that's missing in your life is joy, and the way to get joy is forgiveness. And forgiveness came at an incredible cost. You see, the verse begins in verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. We've all experienced that. When we choose to sin, we choose to experience sorrow in our life. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But it says, the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. How do you cross over from having the sorrows of the wicked to experiencing the steadfast love of the Lord? You need to trust in the one who took our sorrow. In Isaiah 53, it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. That he took upon us our griefs. That he bore our sorrows along with all of the words in Psalm 32. Along with our sin. Along with our transgression. Along with our iniquity. You will only find joy in your life when you place your trust into the man of sorrows. He became sorrowful so that you could be filled with joy. He became your sin so that you could be forgiven. That is the message of Psalm 32. That is the message of the whole Bible. Do not leave this place today thinking that you are a good person. Leave this place today knowing that you are a forgiven person. Be honest. Admit that you're a sinner. And through that honesty, that will lead to blessing, that will lead to security, that will lead to wisdom, and that will ultimately lead to joy. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.